Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Mark Goulet, and I'm a professor of mathematics and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, your host for this program. Today, I'll be interviewing Brian Caffarella, professor in mathematics at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio, about his new book, Community College Mathematics, Past, Present, and Future, published by CRC Press 2022. Brian addresses the key questions. How can we build a future model for community college gatekeeper math classes that is both successful and sustainable? Additionally, how can we learn from the past and the present to build such a model? From the 1970s to the pandemic in the early 2020s, The book uses interviews with 30 community college faculty members from seven community colleges to explore math curricula, as well as trends, initiatives, teaching practices, and mandates that have impacted community college mathematics. Dr. Brian Caffarella is a professor in mathematics at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio. He's taught a variety of courses, ranging from developmental math through pre-calculus, Brian is a past recipient of the Roosh Award for Teaching Excellence and a past recipient of the Ohio Magazine Award for Excellence in Education. Brian, welcome to the program. And thank you, Mark. I appreciate your having me today. So to start, um, maybe we can uh, begin with you telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe a bit about your professional journey. Uh, to start and then and then going into a bit about how you became interested in this particular project. Sure. So I have uh, been a teacher for 23 years. This will be my 24th year coming up. And uh, I started off teaching uh, middle school uh, mathematics, uh, mathematics and reading, then uh, moved up to high school, uh, then to community college mathematics. But I really only became interested in research, I would say, within the last 10 years or so. 
And more specifically, I became interested in qualitative research, uh, even being a – which is kind of unusual for a math person. Uh, most people associate us with quantitative research, numbers, data, and whatnot. But I really became more interested in the how and the why uh, when addressing these kind of imperative issues, especially with why students struggle so much in community college math. Um, so my interest, my research interest is really focused on uh, talking really with students, with faculty members about um, how we can improve um, the, the mathematical experience for students in community colleges um, and what are the key issues we really need to address. So for this particular project, um, I got the idea from actually our college president, uh, Dr. Steve Johnson. Uh, he had a focus group of faculty members uh, a couple of years back, actually before the uh, pandemic. And um, he was talking, Dr. Johnson was, about how as a school leader, his job is not simply, and, and this is the major misconception, his job is not just to manage the present. It's to all, well, it is to manage the present, but it's also to foresee and actually plan for the future. So for a, for any program, for a school to be effective or any program at a school to be effective, you, you have to manage the present, but you also have to foresee and plan for a successful future. So I got the idea of, well, how could we use what we've learned? Because sometimes I feel that we don't learn enough from our history. What we've learned from the history are present in community college math to really plan for a successful future for students. So that's kind of where this really came together. And I'm thinking, okay, so in the end, how can I present some pathways to um, really help a, diver a diverse population of community college students succeed in math? Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I, I enjoyed the book. Um, we, maybe uh, to um, conduct uh, this dis discussion here, um, maybe walk, I'll walk through a little bit of your structure that you use in the book. As we've indicated, and as you've indicated, the qualitative nature of this work involved uh, l literally talking to people, to instructors who were really in the trenches teaching at community colleges from the 1970s through now. So uh, you have a, you know, a reasonable way to structure the book is to create chapters according to each of these decades. So we can begin uh, early on uh, with your um, interviews of faculty and, and discussions that emerged from those interviews uh, who had experiences teaching community college math during the 1970s. Well, it goes back over 50 years, 50 years or so. Um, during that time, uh, it was not unusual to refer to math classes as gatekeeper classes even then. You, you refer to it, in fact, in your in, in, in describing the book. Um, can you say something about that, the, just that terminology and its, its role? What, what are such courses? And, uh, and, and maybe describe that a bit. Well, and the term gatekeeper math courses or even gatekeeper courses um, really has been around um, since the 1970s. Uh, the term basically refers to courses uh, not just math, you could say 
general math, uh, developmental math, English 101, sociology 101, psychology 101, classes that students have to successfully complete so that they can proceed and then eventually complete their college degree. Um, so those courses that I've mentioned have typically been referred to as gatekeeper courses. In fact, the um, Achieving the Dream Initiative, which um, uh, came about in the early 2000s, really focused specifically on gatekeeper courses. How can we help students um, succeed in these gatekeeper courses so that they can eventually progress and complete their college degree? Now, what's changed, I think, is the mindset. I mean, you go back to the 1970s, and I bet most um, folks can remember uh, the first day of class, their professor saying, look to your left, look to your right. Some of these uh, students will not be here at the end of the semester or quarter. And it's basically like uh, sink or swim. I mean, the reality at that point was um, a certain percentage of students will not be successful. Uh, fortunately, what's happened over time is the mindset has changed to how can we help um, retain students? How can we help students have better uh, experiences in mathematics and eventually um, complete their degree? So the term really hasn't changed. The gatekeeper courses has been and I think always will be about these classes, these core requirements, if you will, that students have to complete um, general requirements, uh, liberal arts requirements to complete their degree. But fortunately, again, what has changed is that mindset. We're, we're no longer just accepting that, okay, a certain percentage will not be successful. It's, it's become about what ways um, can we help these students um, succeed in these courses and beyond. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so a gate in a way that, you know, you're encouraging people to come to the gate. Uh, there's a path on the other side of the gate or through this gate that would lead to other opportunities, whether it's uh, future coursework or future career choices or, uh, you know, just, just future knowledge they want to gain. And this course is kind of a critical part, uh, initial entryway or path point in the path towards that. And I think you're right, Brian. I think I'm uh, we're both old enough, at least I'm old enough to re recall uh, my own education back in the 70s, where there might have been more of a focus on the keeping of the of, of the nature of the gate, and that there might have even been more a bit of a expectation that these courses might serve to some extent as filters. Uh, versus, I think, what you're saying, which is currently the, the mindset among amongst educators very much so is how do we keep the 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 entry as open and as available uh, as possible so that we're we're encouraging students to move on um, further in that chapter um, you introduce um, a, a, an organization uh, to the um, to the reader um, some will be familiar with it uh, the acronym is AMATIC, A-M-A-T-Y-C. Uh, um, uh, it's, uh, I believe, an organization of, um, of, of instructors, faculty with interest in uh, um, teaching. Um, but maybe you can say a little bit more about the emergence of that organization and relation to the emergence of the profession paying a little bit more attention to the art of teaching, 
pedagogy. Well, I think um, what I found fascinating was, um, and, and this is probably something timeless, um, most teachers will want to teach their students the way they were taught. And that's not always a bad thing because usually it's good teaching impressions um, that we think, okay, this is how we want to turn around and teach our students. And in the 1970s, um, faculty mentioned that they were used to just uh, lecture-based instruction, 100% lecture-based instruction, very university-style instruction. You know, we the, the class has 100, 150 students. The professor stands up in front of the room, um, talks for the entire length of class. Uh, you have to take notes, uh, and then it's your responsibility to assimilate the content, uh, take exams, and then move forward. Uh, but what the faculty in the 1970s started to question was, how can we better reach our students? So what can we do? What what types of pedagogical practices can we use that we can reach this diverse population? Because what they were really discovering was the community college uh, student population was very different from the university student population that they were used to when they were students. You had students that were coming in unprepared or underprepared. Um, um, they needed a lot more assistance uh, with their mathematics. So organizations, and uh, that stands for the American Mathematical Association of Two-Year Colleges. Uh, that was an example of one organization uh, that emerged um, in the early 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, and um, really focused on how can we help um, faculty members at two-year colleges uh, reach students better? Uh, what pedagogical practices can we help faculty develop? And more importantly, um, uh, AMATIC really kind of created a sense of community where faculty could talk with each other. That You just didn't get the impression that happened um, uh, prior to the 1970s where we actually got together and we talked about, um, you know, students and mathematical practices and what can we do better and, okay, here's what is happening at this school. Is it something that we can try at our school? Um, so it really, you know, it helped faculty develop better ped pedagogical practices, but it also developed a sense of awareness um, as to what was going on and how we could better help students. Yeah, organizations like this is a big step. Thank you, Brian. I mean, it is a big step to create something like that, that creation of community, a kind of community of scholars interested in uh, their craft uh, so that you've, you've recognizing that this is a unique population we're trying to serve. These are, are this is an interesting curriculum where we're, we're uh, um, um, kind of responsible for delivering. Uh, let's Let's give it some professional thought. Let's get together occasionally, maybe once a year, twice a year, regional, national conferences, discuss approaches, uh, perhaps um, publish some of that, uh, get it in front of other peers for review uh, and begin to practice kind of real efforts in a, in a professional way that can assist us to improve our um our, our, our work, and in particular in this case, which would have direct impact presumably on the quality of the education that students would be receiving uh, in the experience. So that's, that's great. Um, so um, it's uh, staying in the 70s. Uh, so we're still, we're still there. Um, it's not unusual today. Some of our listeners 
will um, recognize the phrase emporium model for teaching what's known as a developmental mathematics class uh, today. Um, or, um, But your work reveals maybe that's not such a a new concept, new to 2022 or, or, or the 2020s, but that began perhaps in the 70s. Right. So the Emporia model um, was one of the major initiatives. Um, I spoke earlier about the Achieving the Dream initiative, which basically um, set the goals of how can we help students uh, better complete, uh, com- well, the gatekeeper courses, but, you know, specifically developmental math and eventually community college, uh, college level courses. Um, but the Emporia model was um, a major initiative uh, from the Achieving the Dream initiative. And basically the Emporia model, I mean, there's various ways you could use it, but it comes down to a self-paced model. You have students um, in a lab setting as opposed to um, a traditional classroom where uh, the instructor tends to be more of a facilitator as opposed to a lecturer or giver of information. So the students may um, watch videos uh, and answer questions as a result of those videos. The instructor, with maybe help of some, some tutors, uh, will circulate throughout the room and answer questions uh, kind of here and there. Uh, the, the big part of the Emporium model is students can work at their own pace. So students who may be more advanced uh, can progress through a course at a quicker pace. Uh, And also students can focus on maybe content that is more difficult for longer periods of time. So for example, a student might um, not have as much difficulty with evaluating expressions in introduction to algebra, and they can move through that uh, module or topic pretty quick. But they may struggle with factoring trinomials, and they may need to spend some uh, sufficient time on factoring trinomials. So that's kind of what the Emporium model does. Is it, it really uh, gives that kind of flexibility. And also, um, in terms of acceleration, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, students can complete their math courses at a quicker pace. So they, they may even be able to complete two courses um, in one semester. But the reality was, yes, this was not really a new concept in the 2000s or early 2010s when it was uh, stemming from Achieving the Dream. Um, What I found is that this has really been around since the 1970s. Um, Faculty were using uh, various forms of the Emporia model in the 1970s, and it was really to help serve a diverse population, something that we're continuing to try to do today. Because what faculty were finding was, again, it was it was such a heterogeneous um, skill set. Uh, faculty were attempting to teach developmental math courses, and there were students who really just needed a quick brush up on each topic. There were students who were really struggling in various topics. There were students who were really struggling in various basic topics like fractions and decimals and whatnot. So one faculty member mentioned that she became really overwhelmed with all of this and consequently put together kind of an emporium model where you know students could work at their own pace and she could kind of move around uh, to different parts of the room and help. So this is obviously way before uh, the internet or any kinds of even VHS videos. So it was all worksheets, basically worksheets or workbooks uh, that she came up with. So really, it was it was just about the Emporium model really stemmed from uh, trying to serve that uh, diverse population. 
Thanks. Yes, right. The technology may be different, but uh, the idea, I think, uh, I think you, as you've described, is sort of is a, is a relatively old one and an important one, uh, trying to meet students where they are and not just assume that they're in a place where we're going to we're all at the same place and teach them all as if that's the case um, in that moment. Okay, so uh, moving on then uh, into the next chapter, uh, you continue um, with your interviews, and I, I I don't know if I'll specify. There, there are some people who who remain. Te- so you you have a, a cadre of of people, probably thirty that you talk to that constitute the interviews for the book, and uh, some of those people taught in the seventies and you continued and they also, some of them continued teaching in the eighties, uh, new people who you discovered started teaching in the eighties, you introduce into the, um, interview stream and you begin talking to that new group as well. Um, so your interviews continue into the eighties and there you, you mention observing, uh, the, uh, the interviewers, the interviewees telling you that they're observing some curricular changes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, that was uh, kind of exactly as you mentioned it, Mark. I, I started with, um, you know, a few faculty from the 1970s. Uh, I continued uh, to gather their experiences in the 1980s and the future decades. But as each decade uh was introduced, uh, so were a new uh, cohort of faculty who were also uh, starting in the 1980s. Uh, yeah, and when you looked at a de- like a developmental course, a developmental math course, a, pre- a pre-college uh, or remedial math course in the 1970s, um, oftentimes it was a combined arithmetic and pre-algebra or almost arithmetic and algebra course together. So it was feasible that a student could start uh, this course with whole numbers, uh, adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, and then go all the way up into elementary algebra concepts by the end of the course. And what faculty um, were discovering was this was just simply too much because of the um, heterogeneous skill level and also because of the fact that so many students were um, unprepared. So it's they were just losing so many students in this course. It was just um, too overwhelming for so many students. So their solution – and again, it, 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 this really stemmed from the fact that um, – Teacher, faculty were talking with each other. They were talking with each other at their schools, at other institutions, again, organizations such as AMATIC. So what we started seeing in the 1980s was uh, fragmenting, if you will, of these developmental math courses. So arithmetic and algebra would get split up. Uh, possibly even two arithmetic courses um, and an algebra course or a pre-algebra course. And the goal was to try to serve this um, diverse and heterogeneous group of students uh, because the mindset was, hey, if, if students are really struggling with arithmetic, we need to have a course just on arithmetic. And then at the end of the course, test them on arithmetic, make sure that they have these arithmetic skills, uh, which they do need before they can attempt um pre-algebra. Um, so it was really interesting when you to look at the curriculum of uh, community college uh, 
math curriculum that is in the 1970s and as uh, time continued. Just something else that kind of interested me as well, how in a college algebra course, which is something you don't really see today, um, the topic of uh, factorials, uh, permutations, combinations, which is typically in a statistics course, um, was there. And I I asked some of the faculty about that. And uh, really, it came down to the fact that, yes, you use these concepts such as factorials for higher level math, um, you know, in more abstract, but it, it took talking to each other again. It's, it's something we kind of take for granted now, but it's important to remember that this is this these lines of communication were being established at that point, talking to each other of like, well, well, maybe this is better in a statistics course and maybe in a college algebra course, we need to focus more on these other topics, uh, you know, such as functions or conic sections. But uh, it just fascinated me that it, it was the lines of communication that really established this as well. Yeah, I think that's a great observation or a, or a good discovery because I think um, that shift of you were speaking to there is uh, kind of um, what what some might refer to as early combina- uh, 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 early combinatorics and 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 so permutations and combinations or just ways to count. You know, as we can say, ways to count uh, can get as we'll get quite sophisticated, but it's, it, it, it has some very useful uh, ideas that, that turn out to have good application. Um, and a lot of what we're, we're trying to do uh, early on uh, in teaching math uh, at all stages, but uh, is, is encourage logical thinking, reasoning, critical thinking, um, uh, application of um Perhaps uh, some so, some of our uh, uh, um, problem solving skills in relation to that, um, but uh, it the content sometimes can get um, very broad uh, in that effort, and I think to some extent teachers were thinking, you know, we can get at some of these fundamental skills uh, and 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 take some of this content out to give ourselves time to have students work on these on these fundamental skills uh, of reasoning and logic and 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 algebra that really is going to be useful for say the pre-calculus class to come or the calculus class after that to come uh, and put out put out for for uh, for now, this notion of study and counting. And I think to this day, at least at our university, Brian, I can say we have a finite mathematics class. And I think in conversations with you earlier, you you have such a class you're teaching this semester uh, as well um, that has remained, I think, as a fundamental course in our early curriculum, uh, which is a result of moving some of this content from what used to be in an algebra class out into other classes that have, as you indicated, real usefulness specifically uh, in an area like statistics or probability, um, but isn't necessarily needed for students, goes back to that path gate again, on that path that might be, they might be on for taking this class, uh, whether that be a, to become an engineer uh, or uh, or a scientist or or a psychologist uh, is necessary at this time. So, so that's a that's a great observation. Um, the um, 
the other part of the eighties that you've reference is um and i is is the the way that calculators i I know that historically they probably came around a little sooner than the 80s but they became a bit more ubiquitous maybe in our classrooms um so uh maybe you could say a little bit about that and the kind of challenges that that brought for both instructors and students well, it was interesting um, to talk with the faculty and really learn about um, just the evolution of the calculator in the mathematics classroom uh, and the types of calculators. Because really in the 1970s, um, uh, as one faculty member mentioned, there were a few adding machines, and I did say that, adding machines, that were just simply passed around. So the, the times um, were just a lot simpler. So as the... Um, there's the four function calculator, the scientific calculator, then of course later the graphing calculator became available. Um, they became more widely used. Cost um, was a major factor uh, because clearly when these uh, instruments first came out, the cost was too high. So uh, the first um, really goal was for the uh, the cost to come down um, for students to be able to use them. And um, it was a challenge uh, for, for faculty who had simply taught uh, paper and pencil, no calculators, uh, to really adapt to the scientific calculator, eventually the graphing calculator. One faculty member mentioned that it was almost like teaching a computer course um, using the graphing calculator with all these different keys, because not only are you teaching mathematics, which which is no simple task, but you're you're all, all of these uh, keys and here's what you do now and and the syntax of how to uh, enter uh, data into the calculator. Um, this was all challenging, and uh, here is what I did find encouraging, and I think we can kind of this is kind of this is this was really a flow or a thread from the 1970s, how faculty really continued to help each other. And we talked about AMATIC a little while ago, but even internally um, at their own schools, faculty continue to help each other. It always seemed like there was uh, one or two faculty members who were ahead of the game in technology who could then reach out and help um, other faculty learn um, the you know scientific or or the graphing calculator. Uh, but it was uh, really overwhelming, and I think um, you know, one faculty uh, member mentioned kind of biting off uh, more than they could chew. Like they kind of jumped right in and say, "Oh, I can use the I'll, I'll teach using the graphing calculator." But then it was like, "Well, this, there really is a steep learning curve to this graphing calculator. Uh, maybe." I'm not quite ready for this. I need to kind of step back and uh, help myself prepare a little bit more. So it, uh, but it's it's an example of just um, the just ever evolving use of technology. That you know, as as faculty members, students, we just have to adapt, uh, and we do that for the benefit of our students. We adapt, we we learn, um, we adapt, and then we incorporate. So the examples, and, and again, they were really interesting stories about the emergence of the calculator. Um, this is just going to be something that'll continue all through time. There'll always be new technology that we're going to need to incorporate. But as faculty members, it's really our responsibility to make sure that 
that we really can learn, prepare, and teach adequately. I, um, you know, one one uh, particular anecdote was um, one faculty member tried to incorporate the graph and calculator. It just wasn't going well. They stopped using it. Then obviously the students were kind of annoyed about this because it's like I paid a lot of money over a hundred dollars for this this graph and calculator. They're not using it in class, so it's really on us as faculty members to make sure that we are not only incorporating technology but we are prepared as well. Oh, and I'll add one more thing too. The um, the idea of uniformity as well uh, became kind of a challenge because with incorporating the calculators, it also became about, well, how can we have some kind of a uniform policy because it's not going to work very well if there's, let's say, a college algebra class and you have one faculty member that is allowing the use of a graphing calculator and another faculty member that's allowing no calculator. So that, uh, and again, that's an ever evolving uh, challenge to, to make sure that um, we have some sort of uniformity uh, to help benefit the students. Thanks. Um, so we'll move into the uh, 90s. Um, and um, in the 90s, maybe you can say a little bit uh, briefly about what changes emerged um, uh, there. Um, You mentioned some, perhaps some changes in the, the, the demographic of the student body, Um, uh, increased technology allowed for a different kind of perhaps distance education type uh, approaches and, and, and uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, faculty mentioned how um, in the 1990s, um, and I did ask this question, um, that when they when did they notice uh, the population, the community college population becoming even more uh, diversified? Um, several faculty mentioned in the 1970s, uh, even though the skill level uh, was very heterogeneous, uh, it was typically um, a white uh, 18 or 19-year-old um white male, female, 18, 19 year old, right out of high school. Whereas uh, as the 80s and then into the 90s, um, basically the demographics uh, became uh, more diversified. Uh, Started seeing more black and Hispanic uh, ESL students, uh, also non-traditional students, that is students uh, coming back to school in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, even older. And uh, part of that was also uh, the need. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting where one faculty member mentioned how really by the 1990s, having a college degree was almost like what having a high school degree once was. It was just a necessity. You you just had to have a college degree um, to get any kind of a good job or just a career uh, and to be able to advance um, in your career. So it really became a necessity um, having a college degree. And I think it took some time for the whole idea of open access, uh, which is what community colleges are, to really catch on, even though that had been the case for many years, it was almost like more and more people uh, were saying, oh, I can go to community. I didn't know this. I could go to community college. And high schools were also saying that as well. It's like, okay, well, even though you haven't had the best experience academically, um, you can go to community college and maybe there's something for you there. So uh, 
more and more people started, even though the doors had always been open, it took some time uh, to realize uh, that these uh, doors had been open. So we really uh, started seeing more of a diverse population. And yes, as the um, technology evolved, uh, that opened doors as well. It was really fascinating to hear uh, in the 1990s, especially from the faculty who had taught since the 1970s, their first experience with uh, emailing. Um, some didn't like it. They just found it very impersonal. And um, online learning, which really started as more of a correspondence um, type of a learning, obviously before the, the internet became widely used, um, uh, they, they, they just found that very impersonal. Um, the idea of online learning, because I'm, I'm not really um, speaking with my students. I'm not really meeting with my students as much. We're just communicating uh, via email. So that in itself, um, you, you know, took some uh, adaption uh, from, from the faculty as well. And um, then also what we started seeing at the K-12 level um, in uh, mathematics education was something referred to as math wars. And um, that stemmed from the Na uh, from NCTM, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. They're a very big organization with a lot of say, uh, so to say, in the uh, K-12 mathematics. And uh, really, there was a report um, in 1989 basically stated that um, students really struggle with abstract concepts in mathematics. Uh, so they, they, they may have these rotary skills, computational skills, but they struggle in problem-solving skills, um, critical thinking, as, as you mentioned a little while ago. So we need to focus more on project-based learning, um, service learning, learning through application. Uh, rather than like a traditional lecture, the instructor needs to be more of a facilitator. So that really started what, what were these math wars where you had folks who were more on the traditional side of we need to make sure that students have a basic um, grounding fundamental knowledge in mathematical skills before they can apply these skills as opposed to no, students really need to learn through application. Um, but what was interesting is how these math wars eventually moved their way up to community college math, as uh, we'll see in the 2000s. Yes, I can speak directly to that. Not just community college math, Brian, uh, I speak as, as a uh, faculty member uh, spending the, 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 my professional life in uh, undergraduate four-year institutions uh, present there as well uh, and emerging in the 90s. And there was some also the 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 tension of like you said uh, what what level of technology should one use what level of of engagement should you have in a classroom what what lecture time are you going to give up for that kind of uh, effort or, or pedagogical approach and uh, there was uh, um, quite um, uh, a passionate, uh, debate on those kinds of issues. Um, so, yeah. Uh, um, so, um, so moving then into the two thousands, uh, and, um, you mentioned that it seemed to you from your interviews that, and from your research that you observed perhaps, uh, professionals, uh, paying a little bit more attention to the data that they were collecting on 
the work that was happening in their in their classrooms and and it and how their students were progressing well and the emphasis on data collection really came more from state legislatures and eventually administrators uh, initially in the 1970s, um, the goal was let's um, just serve as many students as we can in community colleges and regarding developmental math, it's okay, um, we're just going to try to help as many as we can. We know that a, a significant portion won't make it. We were talking about that with the gatekeeper courses um, and that's okay. Uh, but it's also important to remember that funding um, for public institutions of higher education in the 1970s really was more about enrollment and uh, what's called the full-time equivalency, basically um, number of full-time loads that uh, students were taking. And that was it. There wasn't really any kind of emphasis on success rates. Um, you know, how are students succeeding in these math classes? That came a little bit later on. Um, where legislatures started asking questions of, okay, so we're paying all this money for students to go to school. Uh, taxpayers are as well. Uh, how are they doing? Well, not very well. They're not completing. Is there a reason they're not completing uh, mathematics? Okay, so what about mathematics? Developmental mathematics. And then developmental mathematics, well, they're large numbers of students are testing into developmental math, they're not getting out, therefore they're uh, not completing. And then it became the issue of, well, developmental math, uh, this is the content that they were supposed to have learned in K-12, which we're also paying for. So we're, pay we're, ba we're basically paying for them to learn it twice and they're not learning it uh, even once. So um, that really stemmed from, from state legislatures, the, the focus on um, uh, lack of success rates, lack of completion that trickled to college, community college administrators, which then trickle down to faculty. Um, so what we saw in the 2000s was many initiatives that really focused on how can we help students um, complete. I mentioned the Achieving the Dream initiative uh, a little while ago, uh, which was geared at these gatekeeper courses and how can we help students um, become more successful? Because what was also happening was the funding formulas, if you will, for uh, public institutions of higher education began to change. It wasn't so much about um, how many students do you have, your FTEs, full-time equivalency. It became about how many students are completing. So that in itself provided uh, some initiative for uh, community colleges to help students um, complete um, at a quicker pace. But yes, we started seeing um, really in the 2000s uh, more emphasis on various initiatives to help students complete. So that's also, we were talking about the Emporium model a little while ago. That's where the Emporium model really resurfaced because it was, okay, students can um, accelerate. They have the potential to accelerate through their coursework at a quicker pace, which means less time in developmental math because one major statistic that came up was the more or longer of a developmental math sequence that the student has to uh, complete, the less likely they are to complete. So how can we get these students through their um, developmental math uh, courses at a quicker pace? So that, that's what we really started seeing more in the 2000s, these, these uh, many, many initiatives uh, to help students have a better mathematical experience. Yeah, and that, that brings us to even some things that go on today. And I'll, I'll just mention a few things because you mentioned them in the book at, at various places uh, and, and just ask so that you could describe 
briefly to the listener um, some of these concepts, the concept of um, what seems to emerge uh, in support of a model like an Emporium model is uh, the notion of supplemental instruction. Maybe you can describe a bit what that is. And that was one, and supplemental instruction had been around a while, actually going back to the 1970s as well. But that um, kind of, uh, in addition to the Emporium model, really emerged uh, in the 2000s as well. Valencia Community College in Florida um, was is kind of looked at, uh, even though supplemental instruction wasn't new, as somewhat of a, a pioneer, if you will, in the 2000s, of, or, or I guess maybe a more modern version of supplemental instruction. And um, supplemental instruction, basically, the, the, you, you will see this for developmental math courses, possibly introductory uh, math courses, where um, in addition to class time, students will attend possibly one or two extra sessions per week, possibly 50 minutes at a time. And these sessions, uh, supplemental instruction or SI for short, SI sessions are uh, facilitated by a tutor. And the tutor, and the tutor is also known as an SI leader or SI coordinator. Uh, the tutor basically, um, in the traditional model, will actually attend the class to, first of all, gauge what the students are learning, but also the instructor's teaching style, maybe what the students are struggling with and whatnot. And the SI sessions are review sessions that really enhance um, what the students have. So, for example, factoring trinomials, uh, solving quadratic equations. Um, will basically review this content. Um, the SI leader may use class discussions, uh, collaborative learning, group work, just uh, extra hands-on practice um, to really uh, help the students. And um, SI has, has proven effective. And it's, it's not, I would say, some of the um, initiatives I discuss in the book are controversial. Controversial. This SI really isn't controversial. It's one of those initiatives where just about everybody supports it. The major debates or questions have been the logistics of it. So should SI be mandatory or voluntary? And the data show that it really should be mandatory because one um, age-old concept with developmental students is they don't do optional. And when uh, schools attempted to make supplemental instruction optional, it was still effective. Just far too few students actually took advantage of it. Um, so logistically, it can be harder to make it mandatory because you have to work with registration to make sure that when students register for this math class, um, let's say intermediate algebra, they're also registering for this specific SI session so that they're with the same cohort of students so that this same SI instructor who's attending the class is also leading it. So logistically, it can, it can be more difficult, but it has proven more effective when um, it is mandatory. That's helpful. I mean, and, you, and I think you rate, that's a, a great point. Um, you know, learning anything, uh, real learning is, is hard. Uh, by, uh, by by sort of definition, you know, I think of, of sort of mathematicians uh, uh, being one of them. Uh, you 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 kind of work through your discipline like a bead on a string, and 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 if you're flying along, uh, everything's fine and you're moving, but it's not until you hit a knot and you stop and you can't go until you untangle that knot that you're really doing mathematics, 
but that's a frustrating moment at the same time because you're not flying along like you were before. And to find ways to to help our students who are inevitably going to encounter that same path, that same experience in learning mathematics to to develop the um, persistence, the um, uh, uh, kind of uh, just just uh, acknowledgement that that it's it's not supposed to just be snap your finger, move move on, but that there's some real learning that's taking place there. And I think supplemental instruction has a really great role to play in that regard because it can take some it can take some of that time uh, for students and uh, and assist them in in those in those times when they're they're facing something a bit more challenging and I'll just add um, one thing too that I think another thing with the supplemental instruction is the engagement as well uh, you know the fact that you are it's the SI session should not be about just uh, re-lecturing if you will the, the content it's engaging the students in discussions group work uh, kind of that one-on-one help uh, which again was such an important thread that I found is just engaging students Right, right, right. Really engaging in problem solving, which is the uh, you know the, the the point of mathematics and 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 logical reasoning. Um, so uh, you met, you've mentioned it already, uh, but but at this point, you know we're well into the two thousands in the book. Uh, online learning today is ubiquitous it's it's the technology is rich uh, available what impact has that had uh on community college teaching of mathematics well it was really incredible to um you know first of all read the research talking with faculty how online learning through the late 90s into the 2000s really just exploded i mean i uh, discussed the the data the numbers in the book and how it, it just really it increased exponentially it really did um and, and it was that was really because because of uh, student needs and, and serving the diverse population um, in that you, you had students going back to school, uh, ha- having families, and really just needing more of a uh, flexible schedule. Um, where they could take their classes. And just in previous research, I've, I've also found too how uh, th- there's just so many ways um, that, that online learning serves this diverse population. I was speaking with one student uh, in a previous research project who mentioned that she went back to school uh, being agoraphobic. She, she Because of some, some past experiences, she was afraid to leave the house really and go to uh, places with um, crowds of people. And how on, if it wasn't for online learning, she would not have been able to successfully complete her, her math requirements. And so it was just another one of the many examples online learning of, of how community colleges have, have continued to serve that uh, diverse population. But the, the challenge um, has been to um, embed material in these online classes that will help the students and also keep up with the times. Uh, that was something faculty were struggling with, with um, online or distance learning in the early 2000s of um, are our materials, is our pedagogy dated? Um, you know, again, online learning or distance learning even started with students really just watching these videos and then from these vid- VHS even, or and then eventually CD-ROM uh, and answering questions. So how can we make it more interactive? And that's when we started seeing um, software programs such as um, My Math Lab, it's now called My Lab Math, um, Alex, 
uh, interactive programs where students could uh, basically answer a math question and then get instant feedback, uh, along with possibly seeing some videos and in the process, uh, maybe sending their uh, professor a question, um, you know, while, while actually doing all of this. So um, that's kind of been the challenge, I think, with, with online learning, and it's going to continue to be the challenge. Um, you know, even as we move through the 2020s to really ensure that um, the technology is meeting the needs of the students and clearly and, and engaging the students as well. That, that tended to be a, a threat as well is making sure that we're engaging the students as much as we can. Um, going back to like the 1990s, you know, faculty were kind of frustrated that they didn't have that engagement and interactiveness with the students uh, that they once had. So faculty mentioned that it's, it's also important that instructors reach out to students um, in various ways, even in their online courses to make sure, you know, is there anything more I can do for you? Um, are you struggling with anything? Kind of have that uh, humanistic approach. And then as we look forward into the 2020s, um, it, it's just amazing to think of the, the technology that will continue to uh, impact um, online learning. I mean, I can sit here right now and say that I think artificial intelligence is going to play a major role, um, you know, going forward. So that's going to be the continued challenge of online learning and in, in terms of serving students with uh, the up-to-date technology, but again, engaging them and, and kind of connecting with them in that human way. Um, I've got a, uh, a couple more questions maybe before we start to uh, move towards wrapping up. The last piece, I, I, there were some I, I, things you mentioned along the way in the book. There's a lot in the book. Um, one uh, um, idea, uh, initiative, uh, organization that you reference is Complete College America. And maybe you can say something about that. The late 2000, uh, 2008, 2009, sounds like uh, you mentioned uh, the introduction of that organization. So Complete College America uh, formed or were funded by, I should say, the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation really uh, took an interest in community colleges, uh, community college math, helping students complete. And this specific organization, Complete College America, or, or CCA for short, uh, and actually Stan Jones uh, was the um, kind of founding CEO, if you will. Um, this organization really focused not just on helping students um, in America complete college, but also look at more groundbreaking ways and through educational reform. So not just helping students complete, but what could we do differently that we haven't done before to help students complete? The major role that Complete College America is really impacting community college math, and this is this is kind of a contemporary issue, is the idea of standalone developmental math. Um, Complete College America is actually advocating for the removal of standalone developmental math. Um, moreover, that students should, regardless of skill level, start in a college level course college algebra, quantitative reasoning, introduction to statistics with a co-requisite. Um, in other words, they, they have this just-in-time remediation. So at the same time, they're taking this college-level course. They're taking this remedial course or remedial component that is, at the, that is basically at the same time synchronously uh, preparing them for the content that they're learning in the college-level course. Yes, uh, you're right. That is a significant point of conversation happening today uh, in, in with, with varying uh, uh, levels of agreement and disagreement with the idea and what that would mean. 
um, maybe uh, sort of similar. You, you, uh, another another challenge facing community colleges today is uh, an uh, idea known as dual enrollment. Maybe you can say a little bit about what that is and what impact that has on today's community colleges. So with dual enrollment, um, this allows us, and this is something that grew uh, through throughout the late 20th uh, century into the 21st and century. It's become a major initiative in many community colleges where students can, uh, high school students, can complete college-level courses while they are in high school. And um, oftentimes these are these gatekeeper or core requirement courses, uh, math, English, psychology. So when when these students graduate high school, they have accumulated uh, a fair amount of college-level credits as well. So when they begin their um, college uh, endeavor, um, they're ahead in the gang, and, poss- and and there have been many cases where students have actually graduated high school and have even completed an associate degree. Um, so they've kind of completed their their basic requirements as well. And the, the findings from dual enrollment have largely been positive um, in that it really helps students. Uh, first of all, it gives students an option. I mean, possibly that maybe they didn't want to go to college or whatnot, that it gives them an interest in higher education. So they are more likely to continue or attend college because they have started their, their courses already. It gives them kind of a sense of direction um, in their lives uh, for uh, possibly a future career. And it also uh, helps the students early on acclimate to college life. Um, in other words, uh, some students get kind of uh, shell-shocked or they're in culture shock when they go from high school to college in that uh, it, it's so much more rigorous. Uh, the requirements are so much more rigorous. So they, they learn about these rigors while they're in high school and they are so much better prepared for college. So, Brian, you spend uh, a, a lot of time talking to 30 instructors and develop, and reading a lot uh, of instruction uh, over the last – instructors who – Spent time teaching over the last fifty years, college, college, uh, community college mathematics. Um, what would you say? Where does that bring us today? Um, what takeaways can can we can we get from this from that from that those conversations you've had? Uh, uh, do you? I, I put you on the spot. What's your What's your take on the teaching of? developmental math today um and uh what 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 have we learned what can we what can we take away i mean it's it's a it's just really that was um i mean if the question was ever what's usually people will ask what did anything surprise you in your research and i don't know if even surprise is the right word but i was just amazed um at so much we can learn um from the, the history of this discipline now um with standalone developmental math in other words should that be eliminated um i disagree with that um especially with with speaking with the faculty looking at the data and i mean history really shows us that standalone developmental math is needed um, for many students. Now, on the, on the one hand, we did 
put students through um, too many long, unnecessary math pathways. In other words, at one time they started, if they placed into arithmetic, they had to travel through these long sequences of arithmetic, ele elementary algebra, or introduction to algebra, elementary algebra, intermediate algebra, just to pass college algebra. And many of them didn't make it. And the, the um, reality was college algebra is not applicable to many students. College algebra really prepares students for calculus. If you're not going into a uh, science, technology, engineering, or mathematical field, college algebra really isn't for you. That, that's, of course, that's in itself something that we've learned. Um, but there are students who really do need um, the skill set that develop that a developmental math course will teach them, um, especially in this age when we were focusing so much on on equity and, and serving that diverse population. It's almost unfair to put some students directly into a college level uh, math course. And co-requisites have proven successful. I mean, co-requisites. Um, students have said a couple things with co-requisites. Number one, it's so great that I can, um, you know, rather than two semesters, in one semester I can um, focus on this remedial content um, and then uh, take my college-level course, so it saves me the time. They also like the um, applicability of it that I'm applying this remedial knowledge right away. So an example of that is in the quantitative reasoning course, um, they focus on debt-to-income ratio problems. Debt-to-income ratio problems require the ability to solve um, algebraic equations with fractions. And that's a remedial concept. So you can learn, the student can learn about this concept, algebraic fractions in the remedial course, then apply it to uh, debt to income ratio problems in quantitative reasoning. So there, there have been so many positives, but co-requisites in themselves just don't have the bandwidth to help all students. There are some students who really need um, extensive practice in basic skills such as solving linear equations, um, evaluating expressions, you know, these basic concepts. There are students who really need extensive practice in arithmetic, and that's something else I addressed too. That, um, that That's kind of, I, I fear, kind of fallen by the wayside in our, our contemporary outlook in, in math is that we have students that really have deficient um, arithmetic skills. So I, I talk about that as well and maybe some pathways um, that, that schools can use to help these students as well. So I think the whole idea is, um, you know, if, especially is sticking to that model of a diverse population and having all of these options. So I also think it's about finding a balancing act. I mean, yes, on the one hand, we don't want to put all of these students through these long sequences of math courses, especially just to get to college algebra. But at the same time, how can we make sure that they are prepared for the course that they need to take so that they don't struggle, which will inevitably wind up in them probably dropping out and, of course, not completing? So I, I think I, I would say within a year, um, especially for the non-math major or non-science major, it's feasible that they can take a standalone pre-algebra course if if they need to, if they need to, not all of them need to, but if they need to, um, then in the next semester, take the quantitative reasoning with the, uh, with an addition, with a co-requisite or the statistics with a co-requisite. And in that year's time between the standalone course, the 
statistics or quantit or quantitative reasoning course, again, with the co-requisite, they will have completed um, their math requirements. So, so that was a, main, a big, uh, per like I think a big purpose as well as to how can we find that balancing act so that we are not going through these long sequences, but we're making sure that students are prepared. So um, I, I really feel that uh, in the final chapter of the book, um, I'm able to address that as well. Um, you know, how can we really serve these students going forward? What are some pathways going forward that are going to serve these, uh, th this diverse population of students? Yeah, I think you do, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, in conclusion, what, are, uh, what, what are you, where, what are you up to now? I know you, we've talked a little bit. You're, you're starting a semester, uh, at, at Sinclair, uh, on Monday. Uh, uh, Monday as we speak here, so it'll be uh, in just a couple days for you. Um, but besides that, what's your next project? So I'm thinking. I took this uh, past summer off. This uh, this book went into print uh, May of uh, 2022. So I was uh, uh, definitely this, there was a lot of uh, research in this book. So and actually, uh, I had written a book prior to this, uh, Breaking Barriers, uh, and then I went from that book right to this book. So I kind of needed some time to kind of decompress over the summer. Spent a lot of time at the pool, uh, watching professional baseball, just kind of kicking back. Um, and uh, but I am looking at uh, for the next project a self-help book um, for students. So kind of a little bit of a different direction here. In other words, a student is going back to school. Um, they're uh, nervous as heck about taking a math course. In this day and age, um, what tools could we give to this student? I'm, I'm starting off. I want to go back to college, but I'm scared to death of math. And, you know, I, I'm looking at a book that will be kind of a guide to this uh, student. Um, of you know, what can you do to prepare yourself? What can you do to navigate the process? So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. That sounds great. Look forward to that. What about um, uh, for the listeners? Where can they find the book? Uh, so uh, the Community College Math Past, Present, and Future is on uh, Amazon. That's probably the uh, easiest way. That's t typically everybody's uh, go-to site. If you go to uh, Amazon, uh, Brian Caffarella, Community College Mathematics. Um, it is also on the publisher site on the Rutledge uh, published, which is kind of the uh, parent uh, publishing company for CRC Press. So uh, uh, Rutledge Publishing. Uh, if you Google Brian Caffarella Community College Mathematics, it comes up in various uh, sites as well. In fact, uh, sites that I've honestly never even heard of. I was I was amazed <laughs> at all the different places. But I think Amazon is probably the go-to site. And I think for students who are going to be using it in their graduate work, uh, eCampus is a res uh, resource as well. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been great. I appreciate your having me.